Hello and welcome to the Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with You podcast, coming to you from a secret location in the south of England, on a particularly nice winter's day. A good day, dare I say, to explore a little about the Cultural Revolution. And that's what this episode's about. I know we touched on the Cultural Revolution last time, mainly to talk about the downfall of Liu Xiaoqi, the president who was taken out by Mao Zedong, and also, of course, Deng Xiaoping, who was purged and sent off into the countryside, but did return, came back into Chinese politics, got to the top spot, and opened up China to the world, making it that economic powerhouse that's throwing its weight around on the world stage today. But today we'll go a little bit deeper into the Cultural Revolution, especially the origins, some of the key players, and um, some of the depravities. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a good time for a lot of people. And also you may be aware that this is a story about me being an English teacher in China, grappling my way through the first challenging year, living in an international school in a place called Changshu. We had a number of foreign teachers that I worked with, uh, one of whom was called Penny, and it was only a week or so into our stint at this school, and while we went off on bikes into the countryside, we made a few friends out there. Um, Penny was particularly good when surrounded by like um, young children who were trying to speak English. We also came across a pretty dirty market, which, you know, on retrospect, was one of these places where COVID-19 came from, in all likelihood, unless you believe the um, lab leak hypothesis, of course. I feel I should note that uh, some of my commentary so far in this podcast has been somewhat negative about China, you know, with the pollution and the, um, and the grey streets and the Americanization and things like that. Well, you know, it, it brought to mind uh, David Sedaris's article. He wrote a few years ago, the humorist David Sedaris, he wrote an article called Chicken Toenails, Anyone? And, and he didn't really hold back on his kind of analysis, as it were, of China. And it wasn't all that good, let's be honest. Um, people hucking up phlegm. It does happen. And he compared China quite unfavorably to Japan, which... Yeah, that's going to ruffle some feathers. Anyway, if it seems like I'm just going to go on and on about how bad China is, then that's not the case. The foreign teachers I was with also give plenty of material to moan about, so I'll be saving some space for them. But Penny, who I went biking with on this occasion, she uh, she wasn't one one of the ones to moan about. She was great. She was really energetic and always wanted to go out biking and exploring and hiking. And on this particular occasion, we found ourselves out in the countryside among the rice paddies and the canals and the stone bridges and, and whatnot, and we'd come across a kind of farm. Well, at least I think it was a farm, but had no enclosure or anything. There were just these goats and chickens and stuff just running around. Um, a police car showed up, which, you know, in retrospect, makes you wonder because of China's reputation as being very security conscious. But, uh, well, I don't think they were following us, but, well, they did 
show up and um, they didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to talk. When they discovered we were foreigners, it's too much trouble. And that's often the way. On other occasions, I was in, uh, on the bus and the police would come on it and they'd take everybody's ID. Just the kind of run of the mill kind of stop and check everybody kind of system they've got going. Took one look at me and nah, too much trouble. You, ca- you, continue, you carry on. Anyway, after cycling through the countryside for a while along these dirt tracks alongside the canals, I made it back to that farm where um, I was watching these goats fight and I realised that I'd lost Penny. And standing there as the light faded and the objects began to lose their definition, you know, it's, uh, there's this kind of matte colours which come with the pollution and the moisture of the Yangtze River Delta. And in that moment, for just a little while, began to wonder whether Penny actually existed. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I was just across the road from a scenic spot known as Sha Jiabang. This otherwise unremarkable township was the setting of an opera of the same name in the 1960s. In the story, the Japanese are on the verge of wiping out Sha Jiabang, and only the cunning sister A Ching can save the day. To understand the meaning of this play, one needs to go back to 1959, halfway through the Great Leap Forward. The CCP met in Jiangxi province to discuss how things were proceeding. A letter was given to Mao expressing confusion about the inflated harvest statistics and the merits of the communes. Peng De Huai, a veteran communist soldier and defence minister at the time, had travelled the country and seen the Great Leap Forward in action. He wrote a poem as he travelled, and it went like this. Grain scattered on the ground, potato leaves withered. Strong young people have left to make steel. Only children and old women reap the crops. How can they pass the coming year? Allow me to raise my voice for the people. And Peng had now allowed himself to raise his voice. In response, Mao extended the meeting for days, showing Peng's letter to other comrades deliberating on what could have possibly turned this loyal soldier friend against him. What rightest snake had slithered into Peng's abdomen and turned him against the glorious revolution? Peng had expressed doubt before, and if there was any straw left after the disastrous agricultural policies, then this would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Mao threatened to leave the party and retreat to the countryside where he'd plan another revolution. The CCP instructed Peng to make a self-criticism, which was the best option he was given. He was removed from any positions of power and began a life of obscurity. Cut to 1961, a historian called Wu Han writes a sympathetic play about Hai Rei, an ancient minister who got in trouble for criticising the emperor. Some things are simply timeless. All was well for Wu Han, until Mao's wife Jiang Qing saw something of an analogy between the play and the Peng incident, which is not altogether unreasonable. For generations, the Chinese have used metaphor and analogy as a way to critique the powers that be. Most of the time it's been a safer approach. 
but Pung didn't do much to ease Madame Mao's suspicion when he declared in a letter to Mao in 1962, because he hadn't learned his lesson the first time, I want to be High Ray. In 1966, speculation about the play became too much, and Wuhan was locked up. An early victim of the Cultural Revolution, he was to die in prison before the decade was out. Wuhan's fate is instructive in understanding the Cultural Revolution. The political backdrop was Mao's fear that power was seeping away, in part because the Great Leap Forward had undermined his credibility, and also because that other communist powerhouse, the USSR, had begun to think again about Stalin's legacy. Communist political establishments turning against their revolutionary father figures was not a pattern that Mao wanted to encourage. From his perspective, saving China from the capitalist road and saving his own legacy were one and the same thing. And although criticising a play may seem a rather oblique way to wage a political struggle, Wu Han was also the vice-mayor of Beijing, and his boss, the mayor, Peng Jun, was a political rival. It's probably worth saying that for your Marxists out there, Mao's cultural revolution wasn't just a result of political rivalries, it made total Marxist sense. Lenin himself had said that Russia needs a cultural revolution to go alongside the social revolution that they'd already achieved. In the Marxist view of the socio-economic system, the base, or the material means of production, has a kind of symbiotic relationship with the superstructure, which is all the immaterial things like religion, education, rituals and stuff, basically culture. The risk is that once you've had your socialist revolution, and taken over the means of production and given power over to the proletariat or the peasantry, which in effect means giving the power to the Communist Party, what a Leninist would call a vanguard party, holding power on behalf of the people. Well, once you've done this part, you leave the door open to backsliding into capitalism or revisionism. The Cultural Revolution, i.e. an overhaul of the ideological conventions of society, prevents that counter-revolution taking place, so goes the theory. So this would be the Marxist reasoning of why Mao embarked on such a mission. The non-Marxist view, the one I find more compelling, is that Mao felt undermined and squeezed out by moderates within the party, and he fermented revolutionary zeal amongst already indoctrinated youths to create circumstances in which he could purge his rivals. But in doing so, society as a whole was turned upside down. Alongside a Stasi-style rat-on-your-neighbour approach, Mao and Jiang Qing weaponised cultural expression, from the opera house right down to the type of shoes one wore. China had been having a reckoning with its cultural heritage for at least half a century, since the 1911 Xinhai Revolution, which ended imperial rule. Back then, China's refusal to modernise was seen as one of the main reasons for its long-term failure to repel Western powers and create a functioning modern state and economy. Cultural conventions in education, politics and business were all holding up the country's potential, so went the argument. The so-called New Culture Movement took place as China's post-imperial experiments fell into disarray and the country became ruled by warlords, while being pushed around again by foreign powers. That movement sought to replace Mr. Confucius with the Western Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy, and in doing so matched the strength and security that the West had. 
There was a radical movement which included students and workers and journalists, fused intellectualism with nationalism and an eye to the future. It was during these days that the Communist Party of China was born, and Mao would look back to the student protests of that era as a turning point for the fortunes of the masses. Now in the turbulent 1960s, Mao's power in question, he would revisit the cultural battlefield with a new totalitarian fervour. In adopting students as the vanguard for this revolution, the Red Guards, he recruited people ripe for ideological awakening, who also had grown up on a strict diet of the Mao personality cult. By turning them against their own teachers, he was fermenting a movement which could attack authority and long-held truths, all under the guise of rooting out corruption, bourgeois tendencies and counter-revolutionaries. All that mattered was the deference to Mao, and all tradition, whether Chinese or Western, was to be rejected in favour of a new Maoist culture. Fidelity to the new way was expressed with Mao suits, the little red books, loyalty dances, and while cultural tools such as the national anthem and written Chinese characters were updated for this new age. Flipping the teacher-student relationship on its head had the appeal of something resembling mass democracy, something which resonated with left-wing movements around the world, who for the most part would not have realised that 30 million people would be persecuted, and perhaps 2 million left dead. Mass discord reigned, with criticism, humiliation and violence directed at cultural and religious treasures, statues and temples, religious people and, of course, teachers. The first victim of the Red Guards is said to have been Bien Zhongyun, a female deputy principal of a girls' high school in Beijing. Among the students who beat her to death were the daughters of Deng Xiaoping and Liu Xiaoqi, two communists who, as we discovered in the last episode, would soon find themselves at the sharp end of the revolution. The leader of this Red Guard faction was Song Bingbing, who in the same month, August 1966, stepped up onto Tiananmen Gate in front of a million fellow Red Guards and pinned the Red Guard armband on Chairman Mao himself, designating him the leader of this ferocious student army. In return, Mao named Song Bingbing Song Yao, which means Song wants violence, and violence was the name of the game. People were dragged from their homes and paraded in front of thousands of angry Red Guards Insulting banners or heavy chains or absurdly large jewellery were hung around their necks and dunce hats fixed upon their heads. They were forced to lean forward in an awkward position known as the airplane while being beaten and berated. Many in the firing line preempted the wrath of the mob by simply killing themselves ahead of time. Many others killed themselves after having survived the ordeal. Military and police leaders turned a blind eye to murders committed by the Red Guards, at times instead providing weapons or accommodation. Streets, restaurants and shops were given revolutionary names, and even particular haircuts could be condemned as counter-revolutionary. Red Guards dug up the remains of the Wan Li Emperor and publicly denounced the skeleton for being old and powerful and dead for 450 years. The grave of the minister that Wu Han had written about, Hai Rei, was also desecrated by the Red Guards. Books were burned and banned, leaving Mao's Little Red Book to thrive as the leading source of thought. Whatever accords with Mao Zedong's thought is right, 
and that which does not accord with Mao Zedong's thought is wrong, as Premier Zhou Enlai put it in a letter to the Red Guards. Although this was through clenched teeth, Zhou only just kept his head out of the furnace of the revolution. Mao lit a tinderbox with its cultural revolution, and even he couldn't control the flames. Eventually he tried to pack it up by sending millions of kids to the countryside to endure the education of rural life. But the revolution left a legacy. The modern CCP's aim of having a docile populace is a reaction to the horrors of an active and ideologically resolute one. China's explicit relegation of ideological matters in preference for economic advancements is also a consequence. But comparisons with modern life do get made in the West. Some have seen echoes of the Cultural Revolution in the way the modern left, especially students, use language and culture to foment political change and have very particular standards of what expressions are appropriate and inappropriate, using shame as a tool of enforcement and punishment. The word for this is, of course, wokeness. There's definitely a religious fervour to some among the woke. There's doctrine and even proselytising and conversion in this form of politics. But there's no figure at the top of the movement, and the activism is basically organic, grassroots and, despite sometimes clashing with the police and causing the occasional high-profile sacking, it's pretty benign. But I can understand why some make the comparison with the Cultural Revolution, especially when you see the videos of students berating their own professors about what they deem are unforgivable transgressions. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Trumpism. Donald Trump embraced his personality cult, redefined what was meant by true and false in the minds of his followers, took aim at the establishment, and mobilised his MAGA crowd to attack the institutions of democracy. Just like for Mao, the Trumpian battle against the establishment didn't stop even after he'd taken the highest office in the land. He just kept on attacking. Other Republicans sink or swim at Trump's behest, depending on who grovels adequately for the dear leader on the evening news or on their Twitter. All this is pretty Maoist. But in this case, Trump had no ideology to back it up. And Mao's nothing if not ideological. Mao was a poet, a theorist and a guerrilla fighter. Trump can barely write, knows nothing beyond his own instincts and is a draft dodger. In both instances, the woke and the MAGA, there is a self-righteousness and a universal worldview which is impervious to criticism, and a demonisation of political opponents to the extent that even simple dialogue is impossible. That's pretty troubling. Nevertheless, I think a totalitarian system would be needed to allow these social phenomena to really take root and cause the kind of upheaval that was seen during the Cultural Revolution. At least I hope so. The impact of the internet can't be overstated either, which, for my money, makes this moment in time pretty much a new thing. That's not to say that we should avoid looking at the Cultural Revolution and wondering if something similar could afflict modern society. There's nothing inherently Chinese or even communist about it, and we spend a lot of time looking for comparisons between modern woes and 1930s Germany, so it would be nice to change the picture a little and bring in another seismic event if such a thing can be done without descending into cliché and caricature. Anyway, as a deliberate ploy to use mass mobilisation to create chaos, to entirely overhaul everyday life, perpetuated by the person who is supposedly running the country, 
who should want stability for his government. The Cultural Revolution is a unique event in history, a civil war with the most blurred front lines imaginable, and we will be revisiting it later. A few years after Wu Han died, Peng De Huai went in much the same way. Tortured and publicly humiliated, he wasted away in prison, denied medication by Mao. His final wish was to see the view outside his window, but even this was rejected. Jiang Qing, as part of the increasingly powerful Gang of Four, set herself up as referee of cultural output and commissioned eight model operas to espouse the revolutionary spirit. Xia Jiabang was one of them. On the back of their subsequent fame, the town became a tourist hotspot, offering lakes and marshes and famous local hairy crabs. I rode back up the track for five minutes to see Penny stumbling out of the bushes. She had found a secondary track which she'd taken in pursuit of flowers, and she had a sizable bunch tied to her bike. Reunited, we set off. I didn't tell her that I'd begun to doubt her existence. The final big road had huge haulage trucks speeding down it. Off this, a bridge crossed the final canal, and we were on the home straight. To our surprise, a small convenience store was hidden away down here, on the gravel track. Three children, siblings, were playing some kind of adventure game with a single large piece of cardboard. There was a lopsided pool table, so we bought cokes and played pool for a while. We were within seeing distance of the school. From here it was quite a commanding collection of buildings. Its redness punctured the surrounding greenery. Its jagged angles and pointless gables sat stark against the darkening sky. The clock tower strutted out in the centre. It was apparently modelled on Big Ben, if Big Ben were modelled on a model railway clock tower. Big Ben translates in Chinese to Big Stupid Clock, much to the mutual amusement of myself and my students. It was good to be back. The next time in Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, A day in the life at the cradle of elites, the school which I now called home.